This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Inside Story on BFM 89.9. Good evening. You are with Lee Chui Lin and Sharad Kutin. Tonight, we are going to be speaking with writer and motivational speaker, Robin Sharma. He's, of course, the author of The Monk Who Sold His Ferrari, among others. And he's joining us to talk about his philosophies uh, of and of work uh, and his latest book, which is coming out soon. As always, let us know... If you have a question for Robin, now is the time. Uh, but also, what is the best advice you've ever received? We want to know. That number to call is double seven double three two nine hundred. Tweet us at BFM Radio and send us a voice note or WhatsApp at our U Mobile number zero one eight seven eight nine double eight double nine. This is Inside Story. It is coming up to 6.07. So uh, our show today is going to be really, uh, I think, an hour long. We're hoping for a conversation with our guest, uh, Robin Sharma, who is a writer, motivational speaker, as well as business and leadership coach. He is perhaps best known for his book series, The Monk Who Sold His Ferrari, um, but he has published a number of other books since, including one that is coming out just, uh, I think, in a couple of months, actually. So we would like to hear from you uh, before we go over to him. Do you have a question for Robin? Anything you want to ask? And what is the best advice you have ever received? Two separate questions. You can call double seven double three two nine hundred. Send us a voice note or WhatsApp zero one eight seven eight nine double eight double nine. Tweet us at BFM Radio. Uh, Robin, thank you so much for joining us. Welcome to the show. And it's it's great to be there, uh, to be with you. It's a pleasure. So, um, firstly, a question that I'm sure you've been asked many a time, but tell us how you got started in this. What initially interested you in sharing these lessons about self-improvement, motivation, living a good life? Well, I think the, the real philosopher in my family was my father. And he filled the home. He was a family physician for 54 years. So he's a man who really believed in helping people. And he filled our home with book after book. I still remember he put this quote on our refrigerator door so my brother and I could read it every morning. And it said, spring has passed, summer has gone, winter is here, and the song I meant to sing remains unsung, for I've spent my days stringing and unstringing my instrument. And so that was a poem that he shared with us to make sure we lived life fully. So he planted those seeds. Uh, long story short, Lynn and Sherrod, I became a lawyer. I was a very successful lawyer like Julian Mantle in The Monk Who Sold His Ferrari. But I wake up every morning feeling very empty. And what's the point of being successful if you wake up empty every morning? So I decided to uh, do an exploration. I learned a lot of tools. I met mentors. I self-published The Monk Who Sold His Ferrari almost 30 years ago. And that led me to write many other books like The 5 a.m. Club and this new book, The Wealth Money Can't Buy. Uh, Robin, uh, you're South Asian, I understand. Um, but, and growing up South Asian in Canada, with all its implications for you know, kind of the formation of your personality, has that impacted your work? I mean, do you see yourself in any way uh, a kind of transmitter of the values that come from your culture? However you it's, define it's, that. I, I think that's a it's a very perceptive point. And I think 
you know, yes, I grew up in Canada, but with the influence of my father, who was from North India, and my mother, um, I think at a very, very deep level, we carry the culture with us wherever we go. And so in my books, there is a lot of the, for sure, the Western philosophy about ambition, achievement, realizing your personal gifts and talents. But what I try to do in my work is also blend that with a sense of soulfulness, a sense of service, a sense of being in the moment, a sense of not letting the most important magic of life pass us by, which is so easy in this world where there's so much distraction and there's so many shiny toys to chase. And that's really what the wealth money can't buy is all about. It's we've been sold a version of riches and wealth that is mostly about money and fame and fortune. And while money is important to put food on the family table, the book walks readers through the eight forms of wealth. There's seven other forms of wealth aside from money. And I think once we start feeding each of the forms of wealth, we, we find much more fulfilling, much more healthy, much more happier lives. And for the people who speak to you or who seek you out, do you find that there is an equal interest in those other forms of wealth? And I ask because I think that we are, uh, as you rightly point out, often sold this idea that in order to be successful, in order to have done well, that um, it is the most common notion of wealth, money, money in the bank, um, this idea of financial success that people most immediately find appealing. Um, when you speak to people, when they speak to you, uh, are they equally interested? interested in, you know, the notions of things like family, community, craft that, that you talk and write about? Yeah, I mean, that's, uh, I hear you loud and clear. And what I'd say is a lot of my clients are, are billionaires and sports stars and CEOs. And I'd say they're even more important in the other seven forms of wealth because they've made money and they're still empty. Makes me think of what Jim Carrey said. He said, I wish everyone could be richer and famous to realize it doesn't make a difference. And I think we also live in a world where so many of us, whether it's in Malaysia, whether it's in Colombia, we've, we've, we've been programmed into a version of success and wealth, which is all about hustle and grind, performance, productivity. There's a cost of living crisis worldwide. Inflation is high. There's so much geopolitical volatility. And a lot of us are pulling back, especially after the pandemic. And we're rethinking our values around work and what is success. And so that's what the wealth money can't buy is all about. It's like there are eight forms of wealth, including family, health, craft, service. And once we work on building all eight forms of wealth, then we can find some true riches in our life. Robin, uh, not to kind of be obsessed by this, but, I, you know, the idea of your location in Canada, I think, interests me because perhaps, uh, you know, just kind of reading, looking at the videos you create, you're speaking largely to a Western audience. And I know the West has gone through kind of its own transformation. It seems to have waves of, you know, uh, wanting to find wisdom in the East. And we have that in the 60s, those new age movements. And then you go back to, you know, the kind of ethos that the Wolf of Wall, uh, uh, the Wolf of Wall Street kind of embodies uh, you know where is where's Canada where are you in the kind of discussions that are in fact global about 
the, the, the ends of life? What is it that we should strive as human beings uh, to make ourselves better, to make our societies better? Well, well Sharad, the, the way I would answer that is I spent a lot of my adult life in Canada, but for 30 years I've been traveling worldwide. I've been to KL, I, I, I speak in Dubai, in the Middle East, all across Asia, all across Latin America, Europe. So my message isn't a North America-centric message. And even from the days of the monk who sold his Ferrari, I was trying to balance the importance of ambition and, and achievement, which almost is getting a bad rap in this world. You know, hard work is getting a bad rap now. Uh, this idea of reaching for something higher in our personal Mount Everest is almost, oh, well, that's making us seem like we're not enough. And I really think life is a balance. I think human beings, what makes us special is we are the people that made the Taj Mahal. We are, we are the beings that created the Eiffel Tower, the great whatever, you know, the, the innovations of the world, the, the, the great art. And that's a human being reaching for our best. That's what makes us human. I've always, though, tried to balance that with perhaps a more Eastern philosophy. And maybe this gets more to your point and more Eastern philosophy of be in the world, but not of the world. Play the game, but don't let material things define you. And I think really that's important. I think too much work is obviously a bad thing. In the 5am club, I people think it's all about being sleep deprived, but there's a whole chapter in that book on the essentialness of sleep. And I share a model in that book called the twin cycles of elite performance, which balances the high excellence cycle with the deep recovery cycle. Hard work, excellence, achieving is important and recovery, enjoying the fruits of our labor and resting is equally important. So perhaps to answer your question as best as I can, I'm trying to marry the Eastern philosophy and a Western philosophy. So we are successful in the world, but we don't lose our soul in the process. Um, before we take a quick break, I wanted to follow that quest, that point up by asking you, because you speak about mentorship and, and the importance of that, and also of taking inspiration from not just people around you, but in fact, thinkers that have come and gone from before. And, and I'm curious, kind of, who are some of your greatest influences when you think about this merging of philosophies, or when you think about um, the kind of lessons that you like, you, you look to impart? Well, before I answer that, I'd love to offer a piece of science, which I find very interesting. I hope your listeners and viewers do. Nicholas Christakos at Harvard University has done some research on, on influence and how our friends influence us. And what he's found is we are influenced not only by our friends, but the friends of our friends and the behavior and thinking of the friends of our friends' as friends. So mentors and our associations are profoundly important for the way we produce, create, and live. Who I've, I've been influenced by, my father has been a, a towering figure in my life. My mother has been incredibly influential to me. Um, my life changed about six years ago when I stood in Nelson Mandela's prison cell on Robben Island. And I learned about the suffering he endured and how we emerged from prison, you know, forgiving people and as a true leader. Uh, Mahatma Gandhi has been 
very influential to me just by his character and his discipline and how one man starts off and through his vision and his words influences an entire movement. So those would, you know, and, and I love Jean-Michel Basquiat. I love, I love a lot of the creative people and great artists who were laughed at because I think every visionary is initially ridiculed before they're revered. So we need to trust, we need to have faith in our visions until people around us see the power and the truth of our visions. We're speaking today with Robin Sharma, writer and motivational speaker, um, about his philosophies, about his books, um, and also in some ways about the new book uh, that is coming out this year. Let us know if you have a question for Robin. We're also asking you, what is the best advice you've ever received? If you'd like to share, you can call 7733-2900, send us a voice note or WhatsApp 018-789-8899, tweet us at BFM Radio. Breakfast for Masters, BFM 89.9. It is coming up to 6.21 and you're listening to Inside Story with Lynn and Sherrod. We are joined today by writer and motivational speaker Robin Sharma. If you have a question for Robin... um, let us know. We're also asking you, what is the best advice that you've ever received? You can call 7733-2900, send us a voice note or WhatsApp 018-789-8899, tweet us at BFM Radio. Um, Robin, I-, I wanted to talk to you about this because you write, uh, for example, about the positive effects of something like a 30-day no sugar challenge. Um, you also have um, the title of the book, I think, is indicative of this interest in lists. Um, the wealth money can't buy the eight hidden habits to live your richest life. And I'm, I'm curious about the value of using um, a specific time span or this notion of a list as a frame through which to understand things. Well, I believe there are a number. What we're really trying to build in so many ways when it comes to habits is consistency. And so giving yourself a specific challenge is very powerful. And I think you're referring to that, whether it's the 30-day sugar, no sugar challenge, a seven-day no complaint challenge, uh, 66 days of getting up early and joining the 5 a.m. club based on the science of University College London that says it takes about 66 days to install a new habit. So, uh, Time frames are very important because it holds us accountable. Most people set a goal, but it's a vague goal. And vague goals lead to vague results. It doesn't hold us accountable. So there's great value in saying, for the next seven days, I'm going to go for a walk at the end of work every day so I come home refreshed and inspired. Lists are important as well. Uh, One of the things I often talk about is the power of journaling, the power of writing things down. And a lot of people say, how can I make personal change sticky? Well, writing in a journal is a time-honored way of installing habits that last and and rewiring ourselves. So every morning, writing out a list of 10 things I'm grateful for, or writing out a list of here are the qualities I want to install to be a better person, or writing out a list of 10 things I can improve in my career is a powerful way to build greater awareness that will drive better choices that ultimately will create better results. Robin, uh, apart from the list, there's also the sense, and I, I, I understand now that we've been talking to you, that perhaps it, perhaps it comes from your father, this, the power of an aphorism, the, a pithy saying that you know, delivers a kind of deep truth. And it seems that your writing is in that kind of aphoristic style. Could you explain why you uh, approach your writing in this way? Well, 
Sherrod, I, I write in a lot of different ways. I mean, some of my books are nonfiction. Some of my books are stories. Um, and, and I write in stories because people love stories. When we were a kid, we learned kids, we learned wisdom through stories. Uh, thousands of years ago in the cave, we had stories on the wall and that taught us wisdom and it, it made us change our behavior. So I write in stories. I write nonfiction. I use a lot of learning models like I did in the 5am club and in this new book, The Wealth Money Can't Buy. And yes, from time to time, every few chapters, I'll have a one line statement that might be memorable. For example, an addiction to distraction is the death of your creative production or have the results only 5% of the population has. You've got to do what 95% of the population are unwilling to do, or maybe one that's appropriate right now, which is you can change the world or play with your phone. You can't do both. And why do I use that technique in some of my books? It's because what I'm trying to do is take people out of the trance that they're in and remind them what's most important. And sometimes one thoughtful, fascinating line can just stay with people. And uh, all I'm trying to do is deploy as many tools as possible to remind people about what's most important. Because ultimately, and you know this, but life is a very short ride. And most people suffer from a habit of putting off their dreams and their hopes and their ambitions to some ideal time in the future when they have more time and they're less distracted and the, the kids are older. And that time, that ideal time never comes. And so the Chinese say it really beautifully. They say the best time to plant a tree was 20 years ago. The second best time is today. And I'm trying to remind people about the shortness of life so they live by their priorities now before it's too late. We have some messages for you. Um, Roshan says, Robin Sharma's The Greatness Guide and Early Day Podcasts really helped me get through some tough times, so it's really quite surreal to hear him on Malaysian radio. My question is, in the motivational space, it can be easy to get taken out of context or people focusing on too narrow a part of a larger philosophy. What do you think are the biggest misconceptions about the 5am club or some of your other writings? It's, it's an excellent question. And I, I don't even think of myself as a motivational speaker. I'm, I'm a leadership teacher. Some misconceptions. Well, about the 5am club, that, that number one, it takes a superhuman person to get up at 5am consistently and do the victory hour process I teach in the book. The reality is every human being, let's go to the science. The, re, the reality is every human being has a gift and the gift is called neuroplasticity, which is a brain that can adapt to new experiences. We are built to change. The challenge is most of us don't stay with our commitment long enough for us to, to, to allow the change to become a part of who we are. Another big misconception of the 5M Club is that it's about sleep deprivation. But I, I was just reading Ben Franklin last night, the great American philosopher, and he and it's such a cliche, but it's true. Early to bed, early to rise, makes a person healthy, wealthy, and wise. And so in the 5M Club, I actually encourage people to get six to eight hours of sleep so that they don't deprive themselves and their moods are good and their health is good. And I just suggest go to sleep a little bit earlier because often what we do between 10 and 12 at night is eat the wrong food, watch the wrong things, 
engage in some bad habits. So those would be two misconceptions. And then the final thing, just to answer, I believe it was Roshan's question, another misconception of my work is that it's only for the rich and successful, the billionaires and the Fortune 100. The reality is, and you can look at my Instagram, people consuming my books and content um, and I really appreciate Roshan mentioning my early podcasts. I was podcasting, uh, I think, 20 years ago. Um, but a misconception is it's it's not for everyone. Actually, the people reading my books are across the world from 12 years old to 85 years old. And I think we live in a world now where wonderfully personal development has gone mainstream. So uh, if we could sort of take up, you know, in the last um, sort of minute that we have, right, um, um, this other thing about the, the world and who you want to speak to, have there been challenges in that? I mean, do you work primarily in English? Have there been barriers to getting your message across? Well, my, my books are published in, in uh, 85 languages and dialects. So it's a it's a global audience for for the books, and um, yeah, they get translated around the world into different languages. So what what I try to do, Sharad, is I try to write about universal themes, universal longings, and universal messages that transcend countries and cultures. Look, I, I know you'll agree. I believe you'll agree with this. We all want to be seen. We all want to know our lives matter. We all want to have our dreams come true. We all want to have good things happen to our families. And at some deep level, every single one of us wants to know that when we're walking in the world, we're somehow making a difference. And that's what The Wealth Money Can't Buy, the new book, which comes out in a, in a few weeks, is all about. Money is important, but it's only one of the eight forms of wealth I teach in the book. And we live in a world where we put the billionaire on the pedestal, but we don't celebrate the gardener who keeps the community clean and who always has a smile on her face. And so what I'm trying to do is redefine what success is. It's so much more than fame, fortune, and applause. And because of this hustle and grind definition of success, a lot of people, not just billionaires, a lot of us, we feel empty because we're on the hamster wheel chasing money and social media likes and, and, and applause, and we've missed out on the riches that are right in front of us, like health and family and adventure. We're speaking today with writer Robin Sharma. We will return um, after the 6.30 news. Let us know, though, if you have a question you'd like to ask Robin, you can call us, send us a voice note or WhatsApp and tweet us at BFM Radio. Brand-friendly marketeers, BFM 89.9. It is 6.38 and you're listening to Inside Story with Lynn and Sherrod. And with us today is writer Robin Sharma uh, on to talk about his new book, which is coming out very shortly, but also to discuss, I think, more broadly his his work, um, because there have been many books that have come before this one. So, um, 
Robin, one of the things I wanted to talk to you about is that in, in reading the book, I found that a lot of your ideas have a common sense appeal to them, right? Patience is a virtue. Spend time with people you value. It's important to exercise and eat well. And yet, I think this is something you alluded to earlier, that it is exactly these sorts of common sense actions that people sometimes struggle to execute or execute over a long period of time. Why do you think that is and how can it be overcome? Well, first of all, I, I'd say there are some common sense things in the wealth money can't buy, but there's there's also, if if I may, you know, I've been at this craft for 30 years. And so it's even more than some of the platitudes like patience is a virtue. The book is, there's 400 pages in the book. It took me a year to write the wealth money can't buy. And I tried to handcraft every single word. And I think there's a lot of depth as well in the book, aside from just, you know, obvious statements. Why do we, why do we have such a challenge living some of the ideas to live a better life? I think one of the things is we have a lot of fear inside of ourselves. When we're, when we're born, we, in so many ways, we are intimate with our gifts and our talents. But as we go through life, we pick up the programs of our family, for example, our parents, our early caregivers, and they share their fears and they share their limiting beliefs with us. And we trust what the people who teach us the way the world works teach us. So we pick up our parents' fears. And then we might go to school and a teacher, well-meaning, might say, might laugh at our dreams or might not really understand us or tell us not to sing too loud or be who we truly are. And then on top of that, as we go through life, we get disappointed. We experience what I call micro trauma, macro trauma, and we begin to shut down and we forget who we truly are. And then we think that the people who build great businesses or who get very healthy or who have great love lives or who change the world are somehow cut from a different cloth. And we resign ourselves to mediocrity. And here's the key. We tell ourselves a psychological story that we really can't do amazing things. And if you talk to any good positive psychologist, they will tell you your daily behavior reflects your personal identity or your personal story. And so what we need to do is we need to question these truths about what we can do in our lives. And another practical thing is we need to spend less time being distracted and being busy, being busy, and start to do the few habits and the few activities that really will allow us to live a really meaningful and wonderful and healthy life. And to that, uh, uh, Robin, we do have a uh, message from Alvin. He says, you have touched the lives of many and helped millions. Are you content with life, Robin? The most honest thing I can say to Alvin, and thank you for the compliment, Alvin, is I am, I am, I am content, but I haven't lost the fire in my belly. So, you know, I'll be 60 in a, in, in a few months and I feel I'm just getting started. And I, I feel I have a lot more, many more books to write and many more people to help. So I'm content, you know, my parents are healthy. I have a wonderful family life. My health is good. And, um, but I think content can also be very dangerous because when we are contented, we can lose the white belt mentality. When we are contented, we can stop getting up at 5 a.m. to make ourselves better people. When we are contented, we can 
stick to our winning formula at work and not innovate. And if we don't innovate, we're going to get knocked out of the game. So I, I'm content and grateful, but I'm also uh, willing to push the envelope and, and try to be better every day. We also have Bernice who says, The 5am book club has been such an inspiration to me ever since I picked it up a few years ago. For the, few, for the first few weeks, I tried waking up diligently at 5. However, after a few weeks, old habits started kicking in again and I'm back to pressing the snooze button. How do I keep that 5am momentum going for a longer period? It's a great question. And we have to give ourselves enough time for the neurobiology of a new habit or a new skill to reach a point of automaticity or so it becomes automatic. So it's like it's like walking or like skiing or like playing tennis. We, You've got to stay with the program and your commitment, keep learning, keep practicing until the new skill becomes a new way of being. And, and again, I don't know what she's doing. If she's getting enough sleep, I'd say go to sleep a little bit earlier. It's very important to do the second wind workout I talked about in the 5M club. So once 10 o'clock comes around, you're very tired. And she mentioned it. She, she mentioned the 5AM club. So one way to make a skill or a new habit sticky is to do it with someone else. So find some other people. If you live in Kuala Lumpur, there's lots of people who are members of the 5AM club. Uh, create a mastermind with them and maybe check in at 5 a.m. Because if you're in a group, it's very, it's a lot easier to make a new habit stick. Robin, to that point, uh, you've one of the things that you mentioned in your book is the negative negativity bias that's baked into our brains. Do you think of yourself as having to break through that yourself while you're writing and speaking? Well, I I think it is it is hardwired this negativity bias and basically it comes from thousands of years ago when we lived in very dangerous environments if we didn't if we were not hyper vigilant for the threats of warring tribes and saber-toothed tigers and leaving the tribe and starving we would die. And so now here it is in the modern age. Yes, there's a lot of threats especially in our world today. Having said that, most of us live so much better than people did even 100 years ago. And yet we are still focusing on what's not good in our lives and what's negative versus celebrating all the, the good things in our lives. And so when I write, you know, I, I meditate every morning. That's part of my morning routine. I do gratitude. I, I try to ensure that positive information gets into my mindset because I think if we are around negative people or negative influences, they will really bring us down. But yes, I still, I think I'm a very positive person, but I still have negative, negativity still creeps in. There's no question. I think that's what makes us human. When, when I was writing this new book, The Wealth Money Can't Buy, I rewrote it maybe 20 times over the past year. And a lot of times I was thinking, this book isn't good. I need to make it better. Will people like it? And so I think that's that's the artist's struggle. And I think it's the human being struggle. I, I spoke to someone recently and they were having a conversation with tennis legend uh, Roger Federer. And he said, all of the great ones doubt themselves. 
We have. Um, I know we don't have a lot of time left with you. I'm just going to squeeze in two more questions very briefly. Um, Anthony says, you mentioned important things like rising inequality, geopolitical tensions, and you talk about the need to grow eight types of wealth. Um, but these issues also require collective political action. How do you negotiate between the personal and the collective given these pressing global problems? Yeah, I, I don't. I, none of my writing speaks to politics or that kind of thing. The, the wealth money can't buy is a book for anyone who wants to live a really rich life. Money is one of the eight forms of wealth, but there are seven other forms of wealth. And the book is full of ideas as well as tools to help people find true wealth in this world that, you know, I think a lot of people are chasing chasing a mountaintop only to realize when they get on that mountain, it doesn't lead to any happiness. You know, uh, Robin, our listeners are people who are in the rat race and they live uh, tough lives because they want uh, and aspire for so much more in their lives, right? It's material, it's spiritual, it's it's also perhaps about family and, and doing well. So when, when, when you kind of, um, I think, foreground the question of or the perspective of gratitude, that's very interesting for me. Uh, but it's not, you know, so I'm wondering why you do that. Why is gratitude something that, we can work with? Well, gratitude is just one of the thousands of things that I, you know, talk about, but, and, and there's a lot of science on gratitude. I mean, one of the leading researchers uh, and positive psych- psychologists, her name is Sonia Lubomirsky, and she talks about the power of deliberate gratitude and what it does for happiness. So, why is gratitude important, Sharad? I'd say gratitude is the antidote to fear. And gratitude, and I call it active gratitude, where we actually force ourselves, maybe in a journal or maybe in a conversation with someone, we build a, a gratitude practice every day. Well, that's a great way to get around this negativity bias, which is part of, to use your words, baked into the human brain. I mean, our brains work in such a way that if we speak to 100 people, 99 of us, 99 of them love us, we're going to go home and tell our significant other, one person didn't like what we said. That's the negativity bias. And gratitude is the antidote to that. If we force ourselves in a gentle way, for example, early in the morning, writing something we're grateful for, or asking ourselves, where are we winning, or what are we doing well, it will refocus the brain on the good things that we're doing, which creates momentum, positivity, and even neurochemically, a pharmacy of mastery in the human brain, which makes our lives a lot better. Robin, just very briefly, a final thought or message to leave us with? There are eight forms of wealth. Money is only one of them. And so let's not spend the best hours of our finest days chasing these shiny toys that will only lead us to an empty life. And that's really what the new book, which is coming out in a few weeks, The Wealth Money Can't Buy, is all about. I mean, having a great family life, money can't buy that. Having self-esteem, money can't buy that. Doing good. Even if no one sees it, money can't buy that. And I'd like people to perhaps gently remember those things. Robin, thank you so much for speaking with us today. Oh, thank you so much for your time, Lynn and Sherrod. It's been a pleasure.
That was Robin Sharma, who, uh, as you just heard, has a new book coming out soon, The Wealth Money Can't Buy, The Eight Hidden Habits to Live Your Richest Life. Let us know uh, what you think as well as what is the best advice you've ever received. You can call us, send us a voice note or WhatsApp, and you can tweet us at BFM Radio. Breathe freely, Malaysians. BFM 89.9, The Business Station. It is 7.08 and this is Inside Story with Lynn and Sherrod. We are speaking today about advice um, and this is following on our interview earlier with writer Robin Sharma, uh, best known perhaps for The Monk Who Sold His Ferrari, though he has written other books. And we were building on that to talk about advice, good advice, and asking you, uh, what's the best advice you've ever received? You can call 7733-2900, send us a voice note or WhatsApp, 018-789-8899 and tweet us at BFM Radio. Um, All right, some advice that's come through. John says, stand up and speak out regardless of what people think of you. John, that's very interesting because that's the kind of, you know, speak to a power, uh, speak truth to power kind of attitude. Uh, But, you know, John, I wonder, though, if you've ever had a kind of uh, counterweight to that, which is that, you know, uh, what is it? discretion is the better part of valor is the kind of expression that encapsulates the opposite, which is that sometimes it's better not to speak up and, you know, to think more strategically about your challenges. I actually think that this is um, speaking out, bravery, um, what's the other one that I'm... Honesty. I, I think these are ones where advice gets really interesting because, of course, the, the thing about something like always be honest um it's theoretically good advice and yet in the wrong hands it can turn into somebody who is just rude um you know so it's one of those things where it's a it sounds good it sounds like it's something that everybody should say to each other and yet um i have known people who have operated on that ethos and were just actually very hurtful (laughs) people um because and disguised under the guise of well you know Honesty is good. Honesty is always good. Yeah, the, my uh, the counterweight to that would be somebody you know, my family say, if you have nothing good to say about someone, don't say it. Don't say it, right? Yeah. And I think context is always important. So there's these truths, there's these wisdoms, there are pearls of wisdom that uh, people uh, you know kind of d- disseminate. But context is so important to w- the kind of actual action you take in the world. And and what I think Robin, I, if I understand him correctly, does is he brings both the truths or something, but he also uh, kind of inserts an exercise or a practice so that, you know, this is not divorced from, you you know, um, kind of developing kind of muscle memory around these things. We also have um, Alyssa who says, best advice I've been quote unquote given, I actually heard it on a podcast, was from the singer Lauren Daigle, um, offense is taken, not given. Yeah, Lisa, that's that's so important in this day and age when everybody, uh, as it were, is taking offense. Oh, can there's almost a kind of like celebration of being offended, and um, and that's a again a reminder, right? It's on use most of the time. People, uh, when they're offended, it's because of them rather than who they say uh, uh, perpetrated I, it. There is that. I think that there is also something to be said about um, even if somebody gave offence or intended to give offence, if you don't take that much of it, isn't that also a win? 
Yeah, absolutely. in and of itself. And you know, it's a schoolyard, you know, chant, you know, sticks and stones may break my bones. You know, and, and so the idea of what's an offense that you need to take seriously as opposed to something that truly hurts you, right? To kind of calibrate your response to uh, the vagaries of the world. Uh, we also have uh, Chris who says, he who is faithful in little will be faithful in much. Ah, th- you know, I haven't heard this one. Uh, nor have I, but I, if I understand it correctly, I think it is, um, I mean, faithfulness, of course, being in its own context, but it's also about, isn't it also about how you do the little things is how you do everything? Because it, it's it's about that, right? It's being faithful in lean times, meaning that you will be faithful in, in other times as well. And similarly, the way you do one thing is the way you do everything. Yeah, I'm not to quote Mao Zedong, but I'm going to quote Mao Zedong. Uh, you know, he did have a, an aphorism where he would say, if you can't do, uh, if you can't do some, the small things, then you're not going to be up to the big task. This is what I'm saying, yeah. yeah. And I think perhaps that's what Chris is getting at. Before we continue with the, with the advice, because th- there's so many good ones, I just wanted to, because no one's talking about work yet. So my thing, um, it, it's not the best, it's just the one that comes to mind, is the one that I hold to, um, is from Ira Glass, of course, of This American Life. And understandably, he's somebody that I'm interested in because of uh, the work that you and I do, Sharad. And he essentially, you can look this up, um, but he talks about the taste gap. I don't think I should read the whole thing. It's long. But he essentially says, nobody tells this to people who are beginners. All of us who do creative work, we get into it because we have good taste. But there is this gap. For the first couple of years, you make stuff. It's just not that good. It's trying to be good. It has potential, but it's not. But your taste, the thing that got you into the game, is still killer. And your taste is why your work disappoints you. A lot of people never get past this phase. They quit. Most people I know who do interesting creative work went through years of this. We know our work doesn't have the special thing that we want it to have. And if you're just starting out or you're still in this phase, you have to know it's normal. And the most important thing you can do is a lot of work. Put yourself on a deadline so that every week you finish one story. It is only by going through a volume of work that you will close that gap and your work will be as good as your ambitions. Well, that's a lot to take in, but I, what I'm, what is it that you found attractive about? Because there's a lot of advice well, out there. I love the idea that Ira Glass sucked. <laughs> to, ah. to be rude about it, um, I, I think I, it's appealing to me that somebody who is now widely regarded as top of his game at one point was terrible and I think that that is not not a radio lesson or a podcast lesson it's just a lesson that if you want to do something and you know that what you're doing isn't good enough because you know what good enough is supposed to sound that if you push through through practice through craft you close the taste gap and the 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 gap between your taste and what you want it to be and the reality of how you actually sound. Yeah, well, I mean, I think that's really sound advice. The other side of it is, you know, um, is when when people that we admire admit to their own vulnerabilities. I think, in fact, I think vulnerabilities is something that Robin Sharma brings up in one of his books, isn't it? Doesn't he? But uh, I heard Na- V.S. Naipaul talk about his vulnerabilities. Oh, man, two years before his death, an amazing story that he told then. Uh, we've got a caller with us, uh, Krishna. Krishna, good evening. What are your thoughts? Hi, good evening, Lynn and uh, Sharad. Um, I wanted to share um, that, uh, see, I I lost my eyesight 19 years ago. Um, I mean, I'm not going to say uh, what the reason is, but then uh, me and my mom, we are very close on the hospital bed when the doctor 
told me that this is how my life is going to be after having a good life of able to see and travel around the world. Uh, my mom, who I was like very worried about how she's going to be taking it, especially ladies who, you know, they take it upon themselves. But uh, she mentioned to me two powerful words that I hold very close to my heart as my mantra. She told me to accept and move on. She said, as long as you accept what has happened to you, it will be easier to move on in life. And um, at that point of time, that was very powerful for me. And um, she also said, you know, do your best, never give up. God will do the rest. And for me at that time was to accept what has happened to me, to, you know, uh, accept it and then move on. But later on in life, um, I realized it's not only my situation, but to accept the things around me, to environment, the people, or whatever that's happening around me, to accept it. And the more faster I'll be able to accept it, it'll be easier to move on in life. And I thought it was pretty profound coming uh, from my late mother and, um, you know, going through what she has to emotionally feel about her, uh, her son losing her eyesight, but uh, coming from that particular emotion, I thought it was pretty profound and powerful. So uh, until today, that's what has, um, you know, helped me uh, sane and uh, keeping me together and uh, doing whatever I can and, you know, excelling in everything that is a uh, challenge uh, being put forward by other people or situations or whatnot. But, um, yeah, that has really helped me a lot, and I thought I wanted to share that because I thought it was pretty profound. And, uh, yeah, uh, <laughs> thanks for the opportunity. <laughs> thanks so much for sharing, Krishna. We appreciate hearing from you. I think um, it's it's wonderful to hear when advice actually gets people through hard times, and, and that it's very clear that that was the case for you. Yeah, you know, my mother's kind of mantra, uh, Krishna, was resilience. I think I've mentioned it about 100 times now on this show. Uh, but it is it is important because that's actually when you're tested, isn't it? When when you when something extraordinary happens to you, to you uh, something unexpected and you have to kind of pick yourself up and and carry on, you know, rather than give up. Uh, yeah, wonderful that you did find that strength and and that it came from your mother. Keep those thoughts coming. What is the best advice you've ever received? We want to know. You can call double seven double three two nine hundred. Send us a voice note or WhatsApp zero one eight seven eight nine double eight double nine. Tweet us at BFM Radio. Break from monotony. BFM eighty nine point nine. It is 7.19 and this is Inside Story with Lynn and Sherrod asking you for the best advice you've ever received. You can call us, send us a voice note or WhatsApp and tweet us as well at BFM Radio. So we've got, um, let's see this from Roshan who says, hmm, uh, you're never as good as everyone tells you, but you're also never as bad as people say either. Basically, discount the opinions at either end. They're likely exaggerative. Yeah, Roshan, I wonder, if, you know, taking lessons from uh, gymnastics or is it, you know, the pool where you have the high scores and the low scores get dropped and it's, you know, you kind of aggregate the things in the middle. Uh, this is, in fact, one of those, I think, uh, truisms, you know, the, it's a way of sort of understanding that um, and not being, and I, I think coming back to Robin Sharma's kind of negativity bias, we tend to look at the low scores, right? Um, and it doesn't, it doesn't, it not, isn't helpful. And I think that's what we need to recognise. I really like this one from Yap. Um, the best advice I've ever received was from my late father. He said, don't bully others and you'll be praised. Don't let others bully you and you'll be respected. And I like this because I actually think that this is something that parents might struggle with, telling their children how to stand up for themselves without 
becoming um, bullies or not, you know, not that I'm saying it has to be on either end, but I do think that it is a, a balance that has to be struck, right? How do you stand up for yourself without oppressing somebody else? And something like this gets in the middle of that. Yeah, it's wonderful. I think going to a school and the schoolyard dynamics is probably where you're going to learn how the world really is and your parents are going to help you mediate that, right? They're going to help you try and uh, negotiate the realities that they are bullies and that you know, you could become one of them uh, and therefore kind of have some power, but how that is not exactly advisable. We've also got a caller with us, H. H, good evening. What are your thoughts? Hello. So uh, the best advice I got was uh, to ask yourself what is the worst situation if you do not try something. Uh, it was a true story back then, uh, quite a long, long time ago, where I just graduated for two years and I wanted to like do a sharing on my findings on my work. So uh, a level person where I uh, feel very fearful of that. Then that's where my ex-boss tell me, he asked me, what is the worst situation if you, if you try and you fail? I say very malu, really shameful if, if that person rejects me. So he said, that's all? I said, yeah, that's all. So the, the worst situation is just malu. I said, yes. Then you know the answer already. <laughs> so I, I asked myself, if the worst situation is really just malukan myself, so why why do I not uh, try it? So then I try and I I I, I hold my guts and then I walk to the person, the high level person that is like I I'm fearful to talk to, and I I told her that um, hey I yeah I'm young but I would really want to like run a workshop to share my findings, and she agreed. <laughs> so that's how I gotten my first workshop sharing to people who are older than me for more than ten years in the workspace. That's uh, the best advice I've gotten and I hold it for almost 10 years until now. H, thank you so much for calling and for sharing that because I think that is fantastic work advice. Yeah, it is. I, I think uh, a sense of proportion, uh, uh, you know, an ability to get over your fears that stop you from taking the next step. Uh, that's always good. And it's great that people nudge each other. It to- is. Um, but also, can I say that it's great that um, people in the workplace might nudge um, women to either do something like this where you put yourself forward or for that matter ask for more money because I think this is something that comes up a lot that people hesitate to negotiate for themselves and then you ask so what's the worst that could happen you don't get fired you know it's just a no yeah but this also applies to love doesn't it Lynn I mean you know this idea of not wanting to put your emotions out there because of fear of rejection. Um, Let's see, more advice. Um, Raj says, choose your attitude and the rest will follow, which I like. Uh, Suraya says, my high school debate coach said this to me before my very first competition. You've already lost half the battle when you start thinking you will lose. I hold on to that in everything I do up till now. Madiha, kind of uh, along with that, says, best advice on overcoming imposter syndrome. Given by an amazing boss, the limitations are all in your mind. Yeah, well, you know, I think these are kind of prepped uh, pep talks that people give each other. Um, and I think it, it's valuable when it comes to somebody who has experience, right? And I think the person speaking the truth is also as important as the truth that's spoken. Uh, Riel says, I've received a lot of great advice over the years, but the best one I have to say is, if you don't do what's right, you'll only do what's left. Oh, okay. That's kind of funny too, right? It's a kind of pun. It's a play on words, right? Right and left. 
Yeah. Yes, it is. Um, but I think it's also that if you don't do what's right, then all you do is what's, whatever's left behind is the second option. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, again, you know, it does sound like great advice. I, I don't want to mention this. Something from Vasudeva says, my father always said familiarity breeds contempt. And it's a, it's a curious one because it's about, I think, setting social boundaries, isn't it, Vasudevan? Yes, um, you, you. I guess you'll have to let us know um, what it, what context exactly you apply that in. Um, we also have Sean who says, from my dad, you can be the last in class, but as long as you get all A's. I, I only got to really understand later in life uh, where what's meant is that life is not a race for positions. Your results are your own. Jay also says, do not compare your yourself to others. If you do, you're only insulting yourself from a mediocre Austrian painter turned politician. Jay, I looked this up. Um, that mediocre Austrian painter, I, I don't think it's proven that he actually said this. So it's been misattributed this to him. This is Hitler, is it? It is Hitler, yes. Okay. So, uh, you yeah, could also well. call him an Austrian vegetarian. So many ways to describe <laughs> the man. Uh, you know, so all this great advice often flies in the face of a world that wants to go in the opposite direction. So, you know, uh, it is it's very difficult to hold on to these uh, this wisdom, right, because the world isn't often structured to encourage that. It doesn't enable these attitudes to be lived. Actually, Sharad, earlier you spoke to, um, you asked uh, our guest, Robin Sharma, a question about aphorisms, about sayings, and, you know, why it is that there's an appeal to them. And I think um, it is because you need he actually also writes about the importance of mantras. And I think that it's something similar to that. You need something simple that you can hold on to and repeat to yourself when, when times are tough or when you're trying to make a difficult decision. Yeah, aphorisms are great. I mean, Nietzsche wrote in, in an aphoristic style. I mean, you know, great philosophers and things that... Because, of course, it's come into some disrepute because it's put on magnets on fridges, right? But that's not... A reason to reject these sayings. I mean, you know, um, and so, I mean, I would say aphorism is not a bad thing. There's, for me, no negative connotation to the word aphorism. Susanna says, my mum's wisdom has been my compass in life. She always said, control your own fate. That meant giving my best, tackling hurdles head on and staying positive. Being helpful and humble were her secret weapons for success. Today, I'm proud of where I stand because I followed her advice. Life's a journey. She taught me to steer my own ship, face challenges with a smile and embrace a humble, helpful spirit. It's not just about what I own, but the person I've become, thanks to her timeless guidance. You know, parents are so important in sort of forming you around these ideas, right? Because uh, God bless parents, they have to find a way to communicate to you these um, larger truths, these, you know, these important values, uh, and they struggle. I mean, sometimes they have these aphorisms, they reach for them, but there's all this other stuff that goes into parenting uh, that strangely enough, stays with us. We've also had a voice note. This came in from Danny. Best advice that I've ever had must have been the one given by my superior at work. He always said to me that we always under-promise and over-deliver so that we don't set the bar too high and ended up disappointing other people. Thank you. Thanks, Danny. Um, I... I think that this is good. Um, I also, actually, my thing is, I find myself uh, really uncomfortable nowadays with meeting deadlines if I'm not early. 
Oh. So to me, a deadline is only met in my mind to my satisfaction uh, when it's early. And I think it's something about over-delivering that, that makes me feel secure. Okay, you're, um, well, you've are you self-confessed perfectionist, yes, aren't you? Yes, it's a problem. All right, okay. But I, I guess, you know, Dan, at the end of the day, you know, we're all trying to... Okay, there is this other thing of over-promising. We live in a world where everything is, you know, uh, kind of some form of over-promising, and from politicians to, you know, uh, product salesmen. And, you know, I'm, and so this is a way of kind of like working against the grain. Uh, and it's wonderful that we have at least some tools in our bag to not f- go with the tide and, and not get swept away. DK says, I feel the best advice is live your life as how you want it to be written on your tombstone. Yeah, that's a, that's a tough one, DK, because it's about sort of projecting yourself into the future and looking back at your life and saying, what is it that you want to be remembered for? It's actually, I think, also about self-definition, right? What is, in a way, it's a tunneling through of your priorities because what do you want it to say? Loving father, um, you know, beloved friend. Like, like there. I think in those contexts, it kind of helps you order what you think is most important. Um, keep those thoughts coming because good advice is always welcome. Um, what is the best advice you've ever received? You can call, you can send a voice note or WhatsApp and tweet us at BFM Radio. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.